This is Stephanie. And this is Brian. Welcome to the final episode of season one of our podcast, The Making and the Remaking of a Codependent Mind. So far in this podcast series, we've been focusing on the making part of the codependent mind. We've explored how most of your maladaptive behaviors, codependent behaviors, started with a childhood friendship with a boy we called G, then continued to deepen from there, given that the effects of that experience remained unhealed, improperly or insufficiently analyzed. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was the traumatic relationship where I developed this overarching codependent behaviors that we that we talked about throughout this whole series in order to survive to survive yeah and manage that and also i didn't develop personal agency like we talked about and went through life feeling largely powerless in almost every area of my life Uh, the trauma was imprinted on me in several ways causing unconscious triggers the largest of which we discovered was shame This all made it super difficult to form healthy, intimate connections with other people. And it left me vulnerable to abusive, narcissistic people again and again. And as we've also mentioned several times in this podcast, I wasn't able to develop a mature, healthy, emotional architecture throughout all this either. Obviously, the phrase emotional architecture is a metaphor. It's not like a technical term in any way. And we're going to kind of explore that metaphor in this episode. Right. Yeah. So at the very root, I often saw emotions as unsafe and something that needed to be avoided as long as I just somehow felt that they were bad in any way. That's what we're going to explore in this final episode of season one. This is the the subject of emotional dysregulation or emotional immaturity and how combined with the other maladaptive behaviors made it extremely difficult for me to even just begin to heal and start living this life that I'm very proud to say I'm living now. So we're using the word emotional immaturity. Uh, immaturity has a kind of pejorative sense, though, in that it's often used as an insult. You're immature. Mm-hmm, right, yeah. We want to try to avoid that sense. We're using it as kind of a synonym for underdeveloped or undeveloped. Yeah, kind of like as something matures, just, you know, a a human being starts off small and matures through life. Plants mature or they don't. And it's this process, kind of almost biological Mm -hmm. process of development, maturation. Um, It's not not a personality trait. It's Mm -hmm. not meant to be taken personally. Yeah, like you're so immature. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so another phrase that we could use is emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. which is a um, term that I think was coined in the 90s. And it addresses the idea that some people are better able to use their emotions and manage their emotions to, to successfully navigate their world, social situations, professional situations, interpersonal Mm -hmm. relationships. We've talked about a couple of times through this podcast, how emotions evolve to give us information about our world and the ability to understand what you're feeling and to kind of name it or classify it and then act on it. Um, That's kind of under the rubric of 
emotional intelligence, emotional maturity, mm-hmm. having a developed emotional structure. Yeah. And so for me, this process of learning what my emotions just were, how to name them and feel them was interrupted at a very early age because of that friendship with G that we talked about. Because of the abuse and the trauma. Yeah. And then because of this, I never really learned how to identify what my emotions were to begin with and then what to do with them from there. So this amounted to this emotional immaturity. So one challenge with not being able to identify your emotions or not learning what to do with them, how to use them, what information they're giving you, is that you aren't able to feel and process your emotions real time. Mm-hmm. So we, we would see someone who we might understand is emotionally intelligent or emotionally m- mature, we would see them being able to experience their emotions real time, um, including the initial feelings, kind of thoughts that come up with those feelings, you know, the physical sensations of, of mm-hmm. the emotions, and then the resulting behaviors. So when they're able, when someone's able to do that, feel the emotions real time, they're able to respond real time as well. Yeah. Including making decisions in the moment based on those emotions and then dealing with the consequences of those yeah, actions. They're not always going to be perfect choices, but the point is you're doing it as it happens. Right. And so, you're doing it in fo- with a lot of more information yeah. about, about the situation. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're not having to reconstruct it. So for me, I avoided feeling my emotions real time. Instead, I would mostly just feel fear or shame. Or shut down altogether. Yeah. Or just completely freeze. Uh, but this fear, fear, and this fear and shame would attach itself to those emotions that I was experiencing. But instead of actually feeling those emotions, I'd have to try to process it later because the fear and the shame was too much to deal with. So if you were starting to feel angry because someone was attacking you, the fear or the shame would overwhelm that, mm-hmm. and then you never got the information about the yeah the anger. Oh, this person's attacking me. I need to respond. Right. So I, then I would have to go back and do this kind of post hoc thinking, like which often amounted to justifying situations or rationalizing about kind of looking at things as something that happened to me, you know, at which point the actual relevant emotions have already been avoided. They've been warped in some way. And then my memories got distorted. And then, you know, I'm processing the wrong information. And then because of this avoidance of real time processing of my emotions, I wasn't able to be fully present for other people in an effective way either. So what would be maybe one example of, of, of that phenomenon? Well, so empathy, you know, so my empathy was already some something of a trauma trigger because of this experience with G and, and how I saw him treat other people. But this empathy also became clouded because my attention was just often consumed with this misdirected emotional avoidance techniques. Yeah, so to relate it to to an example of during the G days, I would see him abusing another person like we talked about. We gave a couple stories of those. I'd feel the empathy coming on, obviously. I feel awful for the person, mm-hmm. but I didn't feel safe doing anything about it. I mean, not even reacting to the other person. I just... So it, the fear, that, that's where the fear would come Yeah, in. so this fear would come in. And then also shame would immediately follow because I didn't do anything. And then, so I got used to feeling fear and shame in response to things like anger or empathy because I didn't feel as though I could actually express those feelings. So instead, I had to figure out some other way of just dealing with the fear and shame I felt as opposed to the anger or the empathy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's where this dysregulation comes into play, that 
we're talking about. So it's emotional dysregulation techniques. So what wound up happening is when these feelings came up, it became this automatic thing where I would just sense that a, that a bad feeling was coming on. That's kind of how I would interpret it, like a good or a bad feeling. Mm-hmm. And a bad feeling would be one that I somehow knew I couldn't react to. So my powerlessness was growing alongside all of this. And I'm afraid that I'm afraid of these bad feelings. It doesn't matter what they are, anger, sadness, whatever. Um, I just need to not feel that because there's, I don't feel like I can do anything really about it when it comes up. So I'm just going to try to figure out ways to avoid feeling it. Mm-hmm. And then when it came to chasing good feelings, so, you know, cause it was good and bad feelings. Um, I would, I was also pretty ignorant when it came to the good feelings too. It was kind of just chasing momentary pleasure or something just but a lot of times it was I was chasing just not feeling bad I was just trying to avoid feeling bad most of the time so I had a hard time really distinguishing what a good feeling was so like when we were talking about the dopamine releases Mm -hmm. being a good feeling the dopamine releases that would happen when you you would stop being abused yeah you you would go through this cycle of abuse and then that that would stop and then you would feel quote-unquote good yeah and so it wasn't a habit for me, because I didn't develop emotional maturity, I, it wasn't a habit for me to go, oh, I'm feeling good. Why am I feeling good? Like a super simple question that for people that be developed emotional maturity, it's just automatic. But for me, it was automatic to avoid. Uh, it was automatic to be ignorant mm-hmm. of my feelings. So Aristotle, if I can bring up Aristotle, sure. who has a philosophy of emotions, and he kind of rejects the good and bad distinction and talks about emotions as either being pleasurable or painful. Mm-hmm. And this this ties into, feeds into the idea that emotions are useful and that they evolved for reasons. I mean, Aristotle was obviously before theories of evolution, but they evolved in part to give us information about the world. Mm-hmm. The painful ones are as important, as we talked about in previous episodes, as the, the pleasurable ones. Yeah, The painful ones... Uh, are expressing something about your situation and expressing something about the world. Yeah. So for me, painful was what I saw as the bad emotions, you know, the ones I had to avoid. So these were particularly difficult for me to deal with, these painful emotions. So in my reading, I came across this term, emotional dysregulation, which captures my experience pretty well. I, it, it's described as an inability to manage the intensity and duration of negative or painful emotions, such as fear, sadness, anger. These emotions can be painful to the extent that they're difficult to deal with and recover from without emotional maturity. Or if you have the sense of powerlessness, which yeah, that too. goes along probably with emotional immaturity. You know, and as we've discussed with, with several other topics here, people aren't born with personal agency and they're not born with emotional maturity and emotional regulation knowing how yeah. to regulate their emotions right. right right so to bring up babies again yeah babies and toddlers are notorious for not being able to regulate or manage their emotions which yeah. is fine um and then you know if, if you've had children or you've been around children of that age you see you, you see them develop more mm-hmm. mature and be able to soothe themselves yeah learn how to express their anger in socially acceptable ways mm-hmm. you know without like having a meltdown in the middle of a supermarket say yeah um 
or just laying there sobbing on the floor. Or right. Yeah. Yeah. They're better, they're better able to deal with their sadness. They're, they're able to to see these things while still painful as 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 things as emotions that can be managed. That they that they themselves develop an increasing capacity to to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean these are these are learned through experience and and also from other people, just mm-hmm. observations, people people teaching you. But for me, feeling and expressing my emotions was unsafe because of that friendship with G. And then also what we mentioned in in an episode about how my dad kind of modeled emotional immaturity with the way he got angry all the time, um, and the way he handled his anger, anger, yeah. and frustration, and yeah, it was clearly or mishandled. It. Yes, mishandled exactly. Yeah, and. And then trauma, you know, especially if this happens in childhood and the resulting trauma responses make emotional regulation super difficult too, because you're going into this flight or freeze mode. So experiencing trauma and other interruptions to the emotional development process can lead to so many different types of emotional and behavioral problems down the road. In some cases, people wind up externalizing it and they become abusive themselves. So like R and J, the two romantic partnerships we talked about before, I knew some things about their their history, but not much. They didn't share that much stuff with me, probably for the reason why they, you know, used my information against me. I don't know. Because yeah, they they were narcissists. It was highly curated. Yes, exactly. Right, right. It would make them look weak or something. But but you know, it's you can always. It's I heard enough to go. Oh yeah, this these people used to call me stupid. Whatever. Like mm-hmm. there were there were plenty. There was plenty of evidence. And so they chose the path of externalization being, I'm going to be abusive. I'm going to cut other people to the chase. Mm-hmm. And, but then in my case, I went kind of the opposite route, which is called internalization. So I, I turn it all inwards. Um, and then this would lead, lead to all these problems like crippling shame, self-esteem issues, the powerlessness we talk about, the mm-hmm. lack of agency. Um, and then this this kind of constant struggle to control my emotions, but just within my own head. And then leading to all these kind of resulting feelings like isolation and loneliness, anxiety, depression, all that kind of stuff. There are a number of ways to be emotionally dysregulated. Mm-hmm. And this externalizing, which seems to be the path that narcissists and other abusive people take, where they essentially refuse to take any responsibility themselves for managing their emotions and mm-hmm. just decide to dump it on other people. And then you're describing more process where you internalize it. You, you try to manage your emotions, but you just did not have the capacity to do so. Yeah, it was just too messy. Like with, with the fear and the shame attached to everything, it, it was just kind of too scary. You know, so I couldn't do it real time. Instead, I had to come up with techniques, I guess, to to figure out what to do with the emotions, usually after the fact, you know. So this is where the emotional dysregulation comes in. So it's the actions I took, so both internally and externally, to just attempt to control my emotions. But in my case, it was maladaptive. Because it wasn't effective in helping you yeah, right. navigate your world. In fact, it was did the opposite. It put you into situations and caused you to get stuck in situations that were damaging to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's I could, the maladaptive part. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it, you know, I could get lucky every now and then, but for the most part, since I'm not doing it real time, there's a lot of room for error there. Mm-hmm. And so most of the time, since also I'm feeling this, these overwhelming feel, feelings of powerlessness and shame, 
I'm just trying to kind of mute the feelings mostly. It's it's just like, okay. So that was one strategy. Yeah. I freeze. Then afterwards I go, man, I'm still feeling shame about this. Mm-hmm. I'm not consciously, obviously. But then I need to figure out just how to feel better. I need to, to kind of pacify myself. Um, and so one of the earliest techniques and really probably the one I use the most, the most damaging of the techniques is called compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. That's a term, it's a defense mechanism. So where people, they're mentally separating conflicting thoughts or emotions or experiences, mostly pretty much to avoid cognitive dissonance. So we've mentioned that term a couple times before, cognitive dissonance. It's the the idea of conflicting thoughts or feelings. And this idea of conflicting thoughts or feelings can be especially difficult for someone like me who felt largely powerless across the board. Because how are you supposed to resolve conflicting feelings if you're powerless? Yeah, exactly. And it's very uncomfortable. You know, that's why the word dissonance mm-hmm. is very uncomfortable emotionally, kind of psychologically, to try and hold two conflicting ideas or thoughts at once. And so it, it has to be resolved. And if you cannot resolve it, you're just in this permanent state of... It's like existential crisis, mm-hmm. sort of, you know? Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it would get so extreme that it would result in this thing that's called flooding, where it's kind of, I have this emotional panic and then I just shut down back to the freeze again. Mm-hmm. But I... Overwhelmed. Yeah, it's just completely overwhelmed with this doesn't compute. Mm-hmm. Um, and like so many other emotional regulation techniques, compartmentalization isn't necessarily a maladaptive always. Everyone uses it to some extent. Sometimes we need to set aside some feelings temporarily because we have to focus our attention on something more urgent, you know, in the moment. There's just a lot of things on our mind and, and sometimes we have to separate them. It can be a really useful technique for staying calm and collected. So where it becomes maladaptive though is when it becomes kind of this go-to technique for just avoiding like wholesale unsafe emotions, which was Mike the case for me. For me, it became a habit, just like the rest of all the other maladaptive behaviors we've talked about. It was one of the earliest causes of my not being able to feel and respond to my emotions real time, I think. Like most of the behaviors I formed during the days of G, though, compartmentalization was actually a useful tool I used to survive, just like the codependency. I felt safe at home with my family. So once I wasn't in the presence of G and was at home, I would be able to just set aside those overwhelming feelings of fear and shame and everything so that I could experience the safety and love that I felt at home. It gave me an opportunity to develop the good parts of my personality alongside these maladaptive parts. But it was also the birth of what I eventually came to see as this kind of Jekyll and Hyde effect and this kind of fragmenting effect. Anytime my trauma or shame was triggered and I was sent into this fight or, or flight or freeze mode, my maladaptive behaviors would automatically kick in and take over just to keep me safe. Uh, just like they did during the days of G. Like, oh no, here comes that old familiar bad feeling again. I know what to do when that happens. Just think of something else. That or I employ any number of these very effective techniques I taught myself in the codependency toolbox. They are done. So when you were a child and experiencing this abuse, but also had somewhat of a safe haven in your family, you you really only had two compartments. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of... Often compartmentalization is talked about in terms of work, your work life and your and your family life. So that's what you kind of had. You had like your work life. Yeah. And then you had to sh- you shut off and then family life. 
and the two didn't speak to each other yeah. at, at all. Um, and as you're saying, compartmentalization is something many of us do, especially along the lines of that work-life split. In fact, we're watching the show Severance. Yeah. That is precisely about that mm -hmm. work-life split. And it explores actually what happens when compartmentalization is taken too far. Mm -hmm. So ideally, it should be a temporary solution. Yeah. So if you have an overwhelmingly stressful job, um, we can think of, say, people in the last few years who worked in the medical profession trying to deal with the COVID pandemic. Yeah. You know, just like terribly stressful days, and they would have to find a way to shut that off when they went home to their families. Mm -hmm. um, and they would have to find a way not to think about their family life and if their families are safe while they're at work focusing on this kind of critical yeah, or somebody that does something that's life-threatening or something like that. But that's not sustainable. Yeah, right. <laughs> or it shouldn't be sustainable. I mean, you know, ultimately you either have to like, okay, if your work life is so bad, you need to find a way out. Yeah. I mean, that's what's happening. And and similarly, if your family life is, is so bad, if your intimate relationships are so bad, mm -hmm. you need not to deal with that by compartmentalizing it. You need to deal with it. Yes. Directly. Yes. But... To go back to your story again, when you're a childhood, you're just dealing with two compartments, mm -hmm. <laughs> this abusive friendship and then and then your home life. Yeah, it wasn't all that complicated yet. But the older I got, the more compartments to kept getting added. So the more I had to deal with my brain started getting just noisier and noisier. And I just kind of be jumping between these compartments. And then each time I did, I'd just find, oh, there's like some kind of emotional landmine in there, like ready to explode. So I had to, no, I can't go in there. So these compartments would come up with other negative experiences, negative relationships, yeah. mm -hmm. sometimes abusive relationships or... Yeah, or, or triggered by, mm -hmm. by... Triggered, just... Trauma. Yeah, triggered situations in which you were triggered. Yeah, and then some of these were very close to the surface. And, and then I would have to do... Like this thing we talked about in the last episode, this shame venting. Pressure would build up so much that I'd have to kind of temporarily diffuse it, like as if I was like diffusing a landmine. But really, I was just putting it somewhere else. I'm just kind of moving it around to another compartment. Right. You know? So your emotional architecture is getting increasingly chaotic. Mm -hmm. So this buildup of compartmentalization and avoiding my emotions wound up leading to some pretty long-term severe effects. Like emotional suppression, and I think even in some cases, repression. Um, I became very practiced at avoiding feeling some of these emotions like anger to where I, it almost seemed as though I couldn't even feel it. Although looking back, you said previous episode, you realized really that you were kind of angry all the time. Yeah, you know, right. When you were in, especially in these abusive relationships. Yeah, it's just, I could never name it. I didn't sit there and name it and feel it. You know, like we said, since I was immature, it's just kind of feeling it inside and mm -hmm. this resentment that we talked about. That's where my anger went. So I developed techniques to avoid these emotions and then turn them inward into something else. So anger was unsafe for me, I thought. It was unsafe to act on. And it was also a source of shame if I let myself feel it for any length of time, like even a short amount of time. And, and what about the good or pleasurable emotions? Yeah, I mean, there was often times where I didn't really allow myself to fully feel pleasurable emotions either. Because I kind of felt this powerlessness kind of gave me this fear of, of you know, some, some sort of bad thing lurking around the corner. And, but especially if, if my body felt that there was an abusive presence in my life, mm -hmm. it was inevitably going to happen. 
at some point. So I couldn't sink into good, pleasurable feelings. Because your own feelings were always a source of fear. Mm -hmm. If other people saw that as a challenge to them, you would get abused for those feelings. And so what happened here is since I kind of had this general anxiety, like all the time, when I was in anywhere in the vicinity of an abusive relationship, um, it took away my ability to see life in, in a big picture sort of way. Looking at my life in a big picture sort of way would require knocking down the walls of the compartments. And as we said, there's landmines in all these compartments. I, you know, I've set these aside for a reason. I don't, cause I don't know how to deal with the emotions that are in there. So now compartmentalization, which started when you were a child, just trying to separate yourself you know, to, to protect a certain part of your life, your family life, from this other part of your life, this traumatic part of your life. Mm-hmm. Now this ability to set things aside or disassociate from parts of yourself or parts of your life is now full-on maladaptive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I developed this habit of being able to identify where a train of thought was going. I somehow knew if I let a certain train of thought go on too long or what might happen if I allowed myself to feel certain emotions for too long would lead to something bad. So as long as I was able to be present enough during a pleasurable experience, like say if there weren't any trauma triggers or other influences that brought about these behaviors, these negative behaviors that we've talked about, I could actually manage to feel these things for for a stretch of time, like love or happiness the way I do now, because I can go back and identify the emotions, which is something we'll get into in the next season, you know, the kind of retroactively place emotions and go, yes, I'm feeling love now. I know I was feeling it then. It felt the same. But if something did trigger my trauma, that presence would be interrupted. Now I had to deal with the trauma. And this took away a lot of emotional resources when that would happen. So again and again, my emotional resources would be sucked right back into this codependent damage control mode. So again, it was chaos. Mm-hmm. I mean, compartmentalization makes it sound like it was you know, that it's very ordered. You know, yeah, all right. these little nice little boxes. It's not. It's a, it's no. a chaotic environment. Mm-hmm. It's like you're in the middle of a war zone mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. So you never have the opportunity to, as you say, look at the big pictures, to step up and say, you know, let's take the war zone analogy. Am I winning? Yeah, right. <laughs> this war? Should I change my tactics? Like, what you know? Is this even worth it? Is this, yeah. What, what, all you're just doing is you're on the ground trying to survive. Yeah. And you, you have no sense of kind of larger the larger picture of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I have no idea that I'm using these tactics. You know, I I don't know I'm compartmentalizing. I, mm-hmm. It's just I just think I'm going through life. I think I'm doing my best, and I don't know any better. And since I can't really read other people, since my empathy is clouded. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's difficult to even begin to know what's wrong. Why am I feeling anxious? You know, why do I, why does this keep happening? Why do I keep winding up with abusive people? All these kind of things. Like, I'm not even really even thinking about that. <laughs> right. I'm not even asking that's these in, questions. That's in a compartment way down in some hall mm-hmm. way that you rarely go down. Yeah. Just asking questions about my life. Yeah. Asking questions about even a small piece of my life, because it may lead to a compartment that I don't know how to deal with. To recap, the development of your emotional regulatory system was interrupted by abuse and trauma, so you were not able to develop a mature way of feeling, identifying, and managing your emotions. Mm -hmm. 
you didn't externalize them and become abusive. You had eternal ways of dealing with them, like we've talked about. Muting them, freezing and disassociating, and compartmentalizing them. Mm -hmm. So really the powerlessness that we talked about last episode, where you felt you had no control of your life, your external life, your situations, who you were with, what you did with your day, that extended to your internal life as well. Exactly. It felt unsafe for me to feel and express my emotions since they mostly just led to fear and shame. The abuse and the trauma instilled in me this pervasive sense of powerlessness and a lack of emotional maturity. So then from there came the behaviors, both interpersonal and internal. There were codependent behaviors that I learned to deal with the abusive friend and then use that repeatedly from there forward. And there were the emotional dysregulated behaviors to deal with the cognitive dissonance in my head, the fear and the shame that came from the trauma triggers and the abuse brought on by the other people that I was directing these codependent behaviors towards. It was like this closed system, this yeah. trauma loop. Right. Right. The powerless and the shame would lead to certain behaviors that wound up only just causing more shame and a deeper sense of powerlessness. With the lack of emotional maturity, I had no way of figuring out what was happening to me, let alone why. I couldn't actually get any information from my emotions. I was flying blind. How does someone break free of this cycle? How did you break free of this cycle? Well, wow, that's complicated, and that's going to be the focus of our second season. That's right. And we hope you join us for not just the next episode, but the next season. You can find us on social media by searching A Codependent Mind on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we would appreciate a like or review on any platform on which you listen.